0: Weddings are a big deal. Why? Weddings are large gatherings. They are serious gatherings. They are religious gatherings. They're supposed to be the most significant and the happiest day of one's life. In light of that, we all hope that nothing goes wrong at the wedding. But now that I'm 45, I've been to a lot of weddings and I've seen a lot of things go wrong at weddings. I was in a wedding once where the minister preached for over an hour. We all wondered, when's he going to quit? I've been at weddings where the bride has tripped over her veil. I've been at weddings um, where the ring bearer was so nervous that he cried the whole way down the aisle. That was me when I was five. I was at another wedding where... (laughs) The minister lost his voice, so he had to reach behind him and grab the communion wine and chug it to regain his voice. That was my wedding. Now, all of these things really are minor, because the bride and the groom got married, catastrophes were averted... But there was a wedding 2,000 years ago at a little town called Cana, where there was a significant catastrophe. Things were going well, and then they weren't, because the wine ran out. Now fortunately, Jesus was invited to this wedding, and because he is the Son of God, he was able to perform a miracle and save the day. And when he performed this miracle, he revealed his glory to his disciples. And something amazing happened. His disciples saw his glory, and the text tells us that they believed, which raises one of the most important questions you'll ever have to answer. Have you seen the glory of Jesus? As a result, have you believed And really nothing else in life matters but seeing the glory of Jesus and believing. Well, to help us understand what's going on in this particular passage, we're gonna look at three things. The story, the glory, and third, taking inventory. The story, the glory, taking inventory. First, the story. What was the context of the story? A wedding. Look again at John 2, 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Jesus and five of his disciples were invited to a wedding at Cana, not far from Nazareth, where he was ministering, and more than likely, this was the wedding of a close a personal family friend of either Mary um, or Jesus. Now, since Jesus loved life and he loved to celebrate and he loved to party and feast, he said yes. He went to this wedding. Does that surprise you? Listen to what John 10.10 says. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus loved to have a good time. Now, it's safe to say that none of us have ever been to a wedding like a first-century Jewish wedding. These parties lasted upwards of five and six days. Can you imagine a six-day party? These parties included singing, poetry, dancing, feasting, consuming wine, laughing with friends. These weddings were really the highlight of one's life. Remember, these people lived hand-to-mouth, in a poor subsistence culture. And so these weddings were a wonderful opportunity to experience life with friends and family. They were a big, big deal until a crisis happens. Now, what was the crisis in this particular story? Well, the wine ran out. Look with me at verses 3 to 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So the wine ran out. Big deal. Couldn't they just use some sparkling cider or some of that amazing ice cream wedding punch? You know what I'm talking about? That stuff's amazing. No, this wine shortage was a huge deal. Why? A wine shortage indicated that the host was embarrassingly poor. Furthermore, in a shame culture unlike ours, the worst thing you could do was bring shame on your family, and this would have brought significant shame on the family of the wedding party. Furthermore, a wine shortage was such a big deal at a wedding that the family of the wedding party could actually take legal action and sue the bride and the groom for their failure of providing enough wine for the feast. Now, at my wedding, they served chicken and pasta, and if the chicken ran out, I don't think anyone would have sued my in-laws. They would have said, well, I'll take more pasta, I guess, and they would have moved on with their lives. But in this culture, this was a big deal well how does christ initially respond to this serious crisis this catastrophe look with me at verses three to five again when the wine ran out the mother of jesus said to him they have no wine and jesus said to her woman what does this have to do with me my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you so mary sees the problem and she begs her son for help jesus please help and his initial response at first seems rather harsh. Woman, what does this have to do with me? But it's not, because in this culture, woman was like saying ma'am or "madam." Then Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. Now in the Gospel of John, the hour always refers to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So he's basically saying, Mother, I know what you want me to do. You want me to save the day and solve this problem, which will reveal my glory. But my glory will be primarily revealed in a couple of years when I die on the cross and rise from the dead. That's why I came, to reveal my glory through that, not through this, but nonetheless, because I love feasting and I love people, I'm going to save the day. Which brings us to the climax of the story, verses 6 to 10. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then they pour wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Christ intervenes, saves the day by turning 180 gallons of water into wine. That's a lot of wine, my friends. But not just any wine. Good wine. Now, side note, this is wine, not grape juice. Serving grape juice at a feast like this would have been unheard of in the first century. Furthermore, when Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, it's the same Greek word used in John. John's talking about wine, and not watered-down wine. We know that because of the the comments of the master of the feast in verse 9. What's the point? The Bible nowhere prohibits the consumption of alcohol. If it did, then Jesus Christ would be sinning in this story, or at least encouraging sin. Rather, the story seems to encourage us to drink wine for the glory of God doesn't it? Now, with that said, the Bible is very clear. Drunkenness is a sin. We must not get drunk, but the Bible does seem to indicate that we can enjoy wine for his glory in moderation. I'm going to camp out a little bit longer on verses 6 to 10. It's important to note that Jesus does not create mediocre wine. He creates fantastic wine. We are not talking about three-buck chuck from Trader Joe's or the wine you can buy in a box at Costco. We are talking about award-winning, expensive vintage. Furthermore, Jesus creates a superabundance of wine, 180 gallons of wine, which most commentators agree was way too much for this particular party. Why did he do that? Probably because... He wanted the bride and groom to be able to sell it and make some money and get their lives off to a great start. Why? Because Jesus loves people and he loves to surprise and delight and be exceedingly generous. Is that how you think of God? God is not stingy like some of us, God is generous. And he loves to bless his friends with good things. God is way more loving, kind, and eager to bless than we can imagine. Now, that's the story. It's a great story. But what do you and I learn from this story? That brings us to the second point. So first, the story. Second, the glory. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. This... The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I'll stop right there for now. Verse 11 is the key to the entire story. According to verse 11, this was the first sign performed by Jesus. The Gospel of John is called the Gospel or the Book of Signs, and that's because There's many signs performed in this gospel to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and worthy of all of our hope, confidence, and trust. Listen to John 20, 30 to 31. This summarizes the whole book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But well, what is a sign? It's something that pre- points beyond itself to something much greater. Well what does this sign point to in this particular story? It points to the glory of God. But what aspects of the glory of God? Well, there's at least three different aspects of the glory of God revealed or displayed in this particular sign in John 2, 1 to 11. For instance, we see God's glory in Christ's divinity. Christ's supernatural ability to turn water into wine proves or indicates that he is not human. How many of you have friends that can turn water into wine? Raise your hands. Okay, no one. Why? It's a supernatural miracle proving that Jesus controls all things and is able to manipulate the elements for his glory, proving that he is the divine Son of God. This is just one sign. There are many other signs in the Gospel of John. Jesus feeds 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and some fish. He heals a blind man. He heals a paralytic. He heals a sick child. He walks on water. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And these signs are just the tip of the iceberg, all revealing that Jesus is God. And 2,000 years later, we have even more evidence, even more signs proving that Jesus is the Son of God. There is the historical evidence for the resurrection. There is the evidence of billions of changed lives. There is the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. God does not want us to believe with blind faith. As Christians, we believe because of the evidence, not despite the evidence. We put our hope and confidence in true, real things because of the evidence of those things. And if Jesus is God, he must be worshiped. If he is God, he must be trusted. If he is God, he must be followed. If he is God, you must repent of your sins and look to him. Because he's God, he'll return someday to judge the world. So, we see God's glory in Christ's divinity. In addition, we see God's glory in Christ's generosity. We see his glory in Christ's divinity. We also see his glory in Christ's generosity. When the wine ran out in this particular story, the joy ceased. The wine will eventually run out in all of our lives. There are different types of wine in this life. There's the wine of illicit pleasure, there's the wine of drugs, there's the wine of wealth, there's the wine of health, there's the wine of success, there's the wine of friendship. And eventually, the wine will run out. It's just a matter of time. That may be in your teens, it may be in your college years, it may be in midlife, it may be in your older years. At some point, Your spouse will fail you. Your friends will fail you. Your job will fail you. Your kids will fail you. Your body will fail you. The wine will run out. The joy will eventually cease. And when that happens, what should you and I do? Listen to this story. From the time of his boyhood in Oak Park, Illinois, to his teenage summers in northern Michigan, Ernest Hemingway went after everything life could give him. He became a reporter with the Kansas City Star, served as an ambulance driver in World War I, spent years in Europe, and was intimately involved in the Spanish Civil War. His famous friendships ran all the way from the bullfighter monolith the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald. And whatever he did, sports, warfare, romance, he went for all of it. And of course, he was brilliant. His great stories, especially the greatest of all, The Old Man and the Sea, show his unique genius. He is a man who did it all. Hemingway went after the wine of life, but there came a time when the wine eventually ran out. Hemingway had everything the world has to offer. But on a warm, sunny Sunday morning, while in his mansion, he walked down the stairs, grabbed a double-barreled shotgun, put it up to his face, and pulled the trigger. All that life had to offer did not and could not satisfy. The wine ran out. And he was filled with despair. Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Tom Brady, after winning three Super Bowls, said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Anthony Hopkins, the famous actor, said this, you know, I meet young people, and they want to act, and they want to be famous, and I tell them, when you get to the top of the the tree, there's nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. What will you do when the wine eventually runs out? When the party ends? When the joy fades? Jesus provided wine out of his generosity at the wedding feast in Cana. He generously gave the wedding party the best wine, and he generously gave the wedding party an abundance of wine. Why? Jesus is generous. He loves to bless us with an abundance of joy when the wine of this life does not satisfy. And he gives us this wine free of charge. Listen to Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. Why do you spend your money? For that which is not bread. And your labor for that which does not satisfy listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus offers you himself free of charge. He gives us the wine of the gospel free of charge. It'll satisfy now and for all eternity. And this joy never fades. Yes, Jesus experienced deep sorrow, intense heartache and pain but his life overall was characterized by joy. And he offers that joy to us. We see God's glory in Christ's divinity. We see God's glory in Christ's generosity. And we see God's glory in Christ's marriage. Every wedding in the Bible points us to the ultimate wedding God created weddings and marriage to be a reflection of God's love for the church not the other way around the reason there are marriages and weddings is because God wants the whole world to see how much Jesus loves his bride the church in the old covenant God is said to be married to Israel in the new covenant we see Christ described as the great bridegroom multiple times Later in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says this. This is John 3, 29 to 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is filled with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, because Christ, the great bridegroom, has finally arrived, and John knows it. Luke 5, 33 to 35, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Jesus is simply saying, I am the great bridegroom. I've finally arrived, so my disciples are rejoicing because I'm here. Of course, they're not fasting and mourning. I'm with them, the great bridegroom. Revelation 19:9. 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In the future, there'll be an incredible feast. The Bible calls this the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ, the great bridegroom, eventually marries the church. And at this feast, the wine will flow freely. The prophet Isaiah describes this great eschatological wedding feast with these wonderful words. Isaiah 25, 6-8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine Jesus is the groom. He's the one getting married. Well, who's he getting married to? His bride, the church of Jesus Christ. But Dave, why in the world would Jesus marry such an unworthy bride? Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus died for his bride, the church, to make her worthy he died for his bride on the cross to cleanse her from all sin, to purify her from every stain and guilt. Jesus Christ has tremendous love for his bride, and he loves her so much that he made the ultimate sacrifice. He suffered and died to make her worthy of marrying him. Furthermore, the Bible says that God will clothe his bride with robes of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jesus Christ has made his bride worthy. By forgiving her, loving her, purifying her, and clothing her in robes of perfect, spotless righteousness. And if you're a Christian this morning, you are a member of the bride of Christ. Which means that all your sins have been removed. And you too have been clothed in the perfect, spotless righteousness of the robes of Jesus. He loves you and he's making you worthy for that great feast someday. Now, it may seem odd to be a member of the Bride of Christ if you're a dude like me. Seems kind of strange. And it may seem weird to think about marrying Jesus. But I don't think this is a literal wedding Yet this language does capture something very important. Weddings are the most joyful experiences of our lives. Our wedding day usually is the happiest day of our lives. At weddings, we feast, we dance, we laugh, we sing, we drink wine, we celebrate with close friends and family. And in heaven... We're going to experience all the same things. So this great wedding feast, this great celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, is a metaphor describing the joy we're going to experience for all eternity. If you're a Christian, someday, when you're at this feast, joy will explode in your hearts, You'll be with the triune God. You'll be with all the saints and the angels. And you will feast and party for all eternity. That's the point of this metaphor. And furthermore, marriages are the closest relationships we have in this life. And our relationship with Jesus, the great bridegroom, is meant to be the most intimate relationship that we have in this life and in the life to come. And after that feast, there'll be no more sin, no more sadness, no more brokenness, and no more tears for all eternity. We all want this, don't we? Well, who gets to experience this great wedding feast for all eternity? That brings us to the last point. So first, the story. Second, the glory. And third, taking inventory. This story should cause all of us to take inventory of our lives. Let me ask you a few questions. Has the wine run out in your life? God will often, very graciously, allow us to hit rock bottom. And that's because he wants us to realize, no matter how painful it is, that he's the only thing that will satisfy us in this life and the life to come. If we have routinely looked to other things to satisfy us, career, family, hobbies, money, success, we must repent of those things. It's not bad to have those things. But when anything becomes our ultimate source of joy or satisfaction, if we love anything more than God, it's it's an idol. And the Bible tells us that God hates idolatry. So you and I must routinely say, God, forgive me for loving this thing more than you. And thanks for letting me see that this does not satisfy. When was the last time you repented of a specific idol in your life. Next question. Do you know the joy of relationship with God? This relationship is meant to be the greatest joy you and I ever experience. Like at our wedding, that type of joy. Now, this relationship needs to be cultivated like any good marriage relationship and we cultivate that relationship through the ordinary means of grace. We read our Bibles, we pray, we come to church, we engage in fellowship, we take the Lord's Supper. All those things are meant to cultivate or strengthen or help us to experience more and more of the joy of knowing Jesus. If I said to you, my wife and I have this amazing relationship but we never talk, would you believe me? Hopefully not. But if we're not talking to God in prayer and we're not hearing from God in his word, how strong is that relationship? Probably not very strong. So hopefully, motivated by grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit, you and I will grow in cultivating that relationship through the word and prayer. Last and most important question. Have you seen the glory of Christ? In this particular story, the disciples saw a small glimpse of the glory of Christ at the wedding feast in Cana. And the text tells us they saw the glory and they believed. And as a result, their lives were eternally transformed. The moment we believe, God removes our sins, makes us his children, and then promises that someday we'll experience Endless joy, like a wedding feast for all eternity. So have you seen the glory of Jesus? Well, Dave, how do I know if I've actually seen it? What does that look like? If you've seen it, you will instantly put your hope and confidence in Jesus. You'll believe in your heart of hearts that he's the son of God, that he's the only one who can sustain us, forgive us, and provide us with everlasting joy. And that faith and that trust will cause you to make sacrifices for him, say no to sin, and follow him no matter what it costs. But have you seen his glory? Or at least a glimpse of his glory? If not, ask God to help you see it. God longs to help all of us see more and more and more of his glory. And the more we see of his glory, the more we become like Jesus. The older I get, the more I realize the most important thing for me, period, is seeing more and more of the glory of Jesus. As we see that in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 says that we become increasingly more like Jesus. Our greatest problem is a sight problem. When we see the glory of Jesus, everything changes. And we're promised to spend all eternity with Christ in the new creation. Let's pray together.